hear me. Скажи мне, американец, в чем сила? А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая, лепота. Таможня дает добро. Я вообще не называю меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? Вот кто я? От русские земля, единый быть. Hi, my name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and today my guest is Tanya. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Ali. Thanks very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's really great to have you on. And this is kind of a rarity for this show, but uh, considering our subject matter, we should really do it a bit more often. But you're actually Russian, which is... <laughs> I am. I happen to be Russian. Yeah, yeah, for people who hadn't sort of suspected from from the fact that your name's Tanya, but, you know... My full name is actually Tatiana. That might be more suggestive. Sure, right. Yeah, Tatiana is very much... Aha, uh-huh, yeah, whereas Tanya... Yeah. Tanya is officially yeah. the short name for Tatiana, but it, I'm, I grew tired because I live in New York and I grew tired of explaining that to people because I want to be called Tanya anyway, so I just went with it. Yeah. Um, so, so, anyway, before we talk about what film we're going to watch today. Uh, Could you tell us all a little bit more about yourself, Tanya? Yes. So um, I was born and raised in Moscow, Russia. I uh, graduated from high school there, and then I moved to New York uh, shortly afterwards to attend NYU's uh, film and television program at Tisch School of Arts. And after I graduated, I stayed in New York, and I'm currently working in TV I'm producing shows mostly these days. So, yeah, uh, again, it's nice to have someone on who uh, has a a film background. Yeah. Uh, as... um, in fact, uh, I yeah, I should mention that I, I decided to go to film school um, in a big part because of my family. Um, my I have a, kind of a history of filmmakers in the family. Uh, my great-grandmother, Milena Maximova, was a famous actress in the beginning of the 20th century, back in the USSR. Um, my grandfather, her son, was a documentary filmmaker who went to uh, Geek, the Moscow Film School. Um, and then my dad is currently also a producer and television actor back in Moscow. So I thought that was part of my thinking when I chose filmmaking as my career path, or at least uh, you know, academic, academically. Uh, because I thought that maybe I could continue the lineage in some form. Yeah, I mean, that's like a veritable cinematic dynasty right there. Yeah, yeah, one may say so. But in terms of, like, the filmmakers that inspired beyond your your family, who was it that kind of made you decide, I want to continue this tradition? Right, well, I I grew up in a household where we were watching a lot of Soviet movies uh, growing up, so I I grew up with a lot of Soviet comedies of the 60s and the 70s. I think that kind of formed, uh, they kind of, they sealed my love for filmmaking to begin with. Uh, That was early on when I didn't even consider it as a career, I just, I loved it. Um, I grew up with Chaplin and Buster Keaton in a lot of silent films as well. Uh, because obviously, you know, uh, because of the filmmaking background, uh, my dad was a big fan. Uh, and I used to watch a lot of, and Harold Lloyd films with him. Uh, I, I will never forget the, I forget what's the name of the film with Harold Lloyd, he, famous one where he uh, is hanging to on the clock when he's... Oh, it's, yeah, Safety Law. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I yeah, love that. Um, it was just so, it spoke to me. Buster Keaton with his sad face, the stone face, I... Uh, well, I was infatuated with that. Uh, so that was the early, that was the early years when I uh, decided, I didn't decide up until the very last minute, actually, that I want to go to New York and I want to go to film school. So when I, when I chose that as um, a degree to pursue, I started, uh, you know, exploring it a bit further. Um, I loved, I, I still do, I love uh, earlier Woody Allen films. Um, I, I love Going Brothers. 
in terms of other influences, probably Fellini, I would say. Mm. Again, again, because of the parents, uh, my father is also a big fan of Fellini, so we had the entire filmography on our uh, in our house. So we, I watched that early on. Um, I would yeah, say awesome. it's it's coming from all over the place. Sure. To my shame, I don't think I've actually seen any Fellini. It's very much Not a single on my one? list. As... What about the famous oh. one, La Dolce Vita or Eight and a Half? No? Yeah, that's the thing. I've seen like little like famous clips from Eight, eight and a Half, but I haven't actually sat down and, and watched the whole thing. So that's very much on the on the to-do list. Um so besides besides Fellini, I'm just looking at that list and there's quite a strong comedy thread running through that. That is true. Which leads me on to my next question, which was, you've also done uh, stand-up as well. So how did you get into that? I am drawn. I've, I've always considered, I don't know, I think comedy is uh, a, a, is a better expression of an idea. I, mean, I like the idea of expressing things uh, through through comedic, comedic lens. I, when I came to New York and I, I was still in school, I uh, had a chance to inter, uh, to intern with uh, Stephen Colbert, his previous show called The Colbert Report on Comedy Central. And I think that was the first time when I realized that I might pursue it uh, a bit more. So mm-hmm. I, over the years, I've had a chance to work with a few great comedians professionally. I worked with what, Stephen Colbert and John Oliver and Samantha. I was going to say, my compatriot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, Michelle Wolf. So after a while, I was kind of immersed in, in that um, industry. I realized that I want to write for those shows. And I, mm. I obviously looked at what people did to be there. And I realized that most of the writers have either improv or stand-up backgrounds. So I tried to do both. So I did improv at UCB. And I'm, I've also tapped tap my uh, fingers into, into stand-up. I just started doing open mics in New York. It's it's very recent. I started maybe in January of this year, so it's it's nothing. I haven't been doing it for even a year yet, but I certainly have enjoyed it. And at this point, I've had a chance to perform at a few uh, great clubs here in the city. How do you actually prep for doing a a stand up gig? Because I, it's something that I've occasionally thought, oh, maybe I should try my hand up, but I've never really you know had the i'm definitely doing this i have to make it work it's, so. it's, it's a moment it's a momentary thing i don't think it's it's a thing that you prepare for at least that's not my experience oh okay i just decided to do it and that's it you, you just you kind of sit down and you write down your material you uh figure out what you want to say um i also took a few classes so that helped uh kind of jump start it um so i i, I worked with a, with a guy who's um, a professional stand-up comedian here in the city who kind of helped me shape some of my material a little bit, but um, it mm. comes, it comes. I don't know. It just, I would say, it just happened, and I, I realized. I mean, it's pretty obvious that it's 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 a weird position to be a Russian living in New York in 2018. Uh, <laughs> yes. Russia is very much on the <laughs> forefront of the agenda uh, for many reasons. Is is that right, Tanya? That yeah. totally passed me by. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I thought it's pretty obvious and I thought it would be interesting to tap into that and to kind of explore mm. that, but bring it from the perspective of a Russian. Uh, yeah. Right? It's, it's kind of, it has a unique perspective a little bit. So uh, I thought that might be interesting. Uh, and I was just yeah. interested in it. And I, I just, um, my father, he used to be, before he became an actor, back in the day, he was a, uh, he had his rock band, and he would tour the Soviet oh, okay. Union with a rock band. So I think that's where the love for stage is coming from, too. I I was drawn to it. I, I like the attention. I like the spotlight. <laughs> so it's very selfish, uh, but I, it's indulgent, really. Well, I am really not in a position to to criticize as as somebody who is who's been in a band in the past and no, is also so you're familiar with that that rush for that. They're, they're kind of like it's it's nice to have a captive audience, especially if they're appreciative. Oh, absolutely! And there's no, I honestly I don't think there's any bigger joy than making people laugh and seeing and hearing them laugh. I, that's just you know it's euphoric. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. To- totally, totally agree. So um, it's pretty apt then that the film uh, we're covering today is 
very much a comedy. So I'm going to try and land this because it's a long Russian title. Like, the first two bits is fine. It's the second bit. <laughs> you get into the verbs and then, you know, Russian verbs are typically long. This isn't even a long one, really. But anyway. I believe it. You can do it. <laughs> okay. So here goes. So the title is Dabr Pajalovat, Welcome. Ili Pastoronim Fort Vaspreshon, which variously translated is or no trespassing. Probably um, a more literal translation is no unauthorized access or unauthorized access is forbidden. <laughs> yeah, well, in Russia, it's um, that's a common that's a common sign that you would see. Yeah, it's basically yeah, it's no trespassing. So no trespassing is the succinct. Little translation, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although um, I, I found out that in the UK, when the film was released, it was translated into "No Holiday for Inishkin." <laughs> Inishkin being yes. the character of the show of the film, yeah, which is is much more succinct. But so uh, we were chatting back and forth about this before yeah. we did the recording, and I think we both agreed that whilst in some ways it's a less unwieldy title, it's it doesn't really capture. Definitely, it doesn't capture the, the, the inherent contradiction, um, you know, that the uh, that the director Ellen Plymouth wanted to kind of, you know, con- communicate. Yes. So yes, I should say this will be a second watch for me and an umpteenth watch for you, as I understand you grew up with it. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of I've, I've seen it. Oh my god, I've seen it. I I lost times. So I would, as with most of Soviet comedies that we would watch over and over, uh, me and my family we can basically. We can quote this film back to each other in in the most random circumstances, and we, we would all know where the phrase is coming from. Nice. I th- I think the the nearest thing to that for me was the Return of the Pink Panther, the Salas film. <laughs> Although that one I haven't watched for many many years. It was one I watched countless times as a young kid. You know, and my right dad liked it as well but i suspect it doesn't stand up very well with the whole cato and the <laughs> slightly racist stuff in there but but anyway so with this film it's from 1964 it's like the first full film by this director and this director lm klimov is probably much better known for the last film he made wouldn't you agree yeah, i think so yes um although not in i would say maybe not in russia because uh, oh, Russians are very okay. familiar with this film, but probably worldwide, he's probably most well-known for his last film. Yes, which is Come and See, Idi Ismatri, which is a very different film. I haven't seen it yet, but everyone I've spoken to about it is basically like, I'm glad I watched it. It's an important film. It's an extremely well-done film, but it's also like a deeply traumatizing film. And actually, you know what? In fact, I was reading some of the reviews of Welcome or No Trespassing on English-speaking websites, and some people were commenting how they were unaware that someone who shot Come and See was capable of shooting this, you know, uh, light kids movie, kids comedy, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, the the central protagonist in both is a young boy. I mean, I think yeah. Inichkin is, you know, quite a few years younger. Like, I would say he's, what, like eight or nine? Right. Maybe ten. Whereas I want to say the character in Idis Matri is probably like 12, 13, you know. And Ellen Cleaver actually had a, lot of, he had a lot of experience working with kids even prior mm. to his first film, prior to Welcome or No Trespassing. When he was in Moscow Film School, some of his, you know, uh, third year pieces, um, some of his previous works also involved work with kids. So he's been working mm-hmm. with children throughout his career, actually. He's been very good with them, according to, you know, Diaries and Lamarts. Okay, that, that's that's cool. Yeah, which, you know, explains how he's able to get fantastic performances. Out yeah, of absolutely. They, they adored yeah. him. The kids adored him. Um, I read something that he would always, he would not try to give them the directions in the classical sense, but he would always create games and some mm. weird assignments, and they just they adored it. They adored him. Yeah, it seems to be one of one of those things. Like kids' performances in films, is they're either great and totally naturalistic, or they're awful and they're kind of like that's true. That's you know, true. Anakin. In... That's true. Another film. Another film that comes to mind that's not really related, but um, 
Francois Truffaut's 400 Blows, remember the stunning performance of the kid, the main guy? I don't know if you're familiar with that film at all. I've not seen it, no. Oh, oh, again. Forget. (laughs) Don't worry about it. You should watch it. It's an amazing film, too, by the way, with incredible performance by a kid of of roughly the same age, I would say, is eight or nine. Um, Mm. But Truffaut made him cry during casting. Oh, <laughs> he wanted he wanted raw performance from kids, so it's it's gotcha. kind of a different approach, but the same result. <laughs> yeah, a thing I'm very fond of. Haven't watched it for quite a few years. It's a British sitcom called Outnumbered. I've never seen it. Yeah, it's 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 really good. It's it's a sitcom, but it, it's quite different from the classical, you know, laugh track, canned laughter type. You Outnumbered, know. you said. Outnumbered, yes. Yeah, it's, it it's well worth ch- checking out because the, the kids in that are, are very, very funny. And it sounds like they took a similar approach with them in, in terms of like giving them like sort of informal brief about what the scene was about and what they were what they would be talking about, but not getting them to you know memorize and recite lines. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that seems like it's a good way to get the best out of young actors. But... Uh, yeah, I don't know, but I, I just know that it's a famously difficult thing. Of course, I mean that makes do. sense, right? Uh, because you want to elicit you want to elicit natural performance from a kid who is um, maybe a bit more conscious about acting. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention about Klimov, just in passing, really, was he was part of like I guess a Soviet cinema power couple, if that's a that's <laughs> sensible way of referring to it. His I mean, I, I guess maybe less so now, but it sounds like at the time, if anything, his wife, Larissa Shapitko, was a more famous director than he was. I, I would say so, although he was also, he was pretty well regarded and highly acclaimed during mm. his years in school too, but I would say sure. that she was definitely, she was definitely more out there. I'm not sure if that's the case anymore, but at the time, definitely. Yeah, I mean, they were both n- not, particularly prolific in terms of the number of films they made. I mean, with her, she, what, was 40 or 41 when she was tragically killed in a car accident? So yeah, with him, he he did come and see, and then that was it. Yeah, but he's famous. It's famous because he was... He would always be very picky about the kind of films that he would make, and he would always want them making his way. He was stubborn, uh, famously stubborn on not accepting anything less than that. So um, a number of his films were never made because of that, because of the contradiction gotcha. that he had. Yeah, and the I guess pressure from the people giving the green light. In fact, he uh, he made this film, Welcome or No Trespassing. It wasn't his script. The screenplay is written mm. by Simon Lungin and Ilya Nusuf, I think. Yeah, but he was he was originally going to make something else as his thesis film, but it just didn't it didn't get greenlight. Gotcha. But he obviously really liked what was in this. Oh, one. absolutely. Yes, and um, you know the screenwriters approached him with this screenplay, which they uh, said was about the summer camp, basically. <laughs> and then they worked on the screenplay a bit more together. Um, and then he decided to turn that into his thesis film. Yeah, it's really it's really good. But we should <laughs> we should probably watch it again. Yes, let's do it. Okay. So what we like to say at this point every time round to get some actual Russian language into the podcast is we say "payekhali," which means uh, let's go. Yeah. Okay. So three, two, one. Payekhali. And welcome back. Tanya and I have just watched Welcome or No Trespassing, or as we learnt no <laughs> before the break, No Holiday for Inichkin. But before we get into the discussion of what we thought on this rewatch, over to you, Tanya, for the summary. Oh, usual spoiler warning. If you haven't watched it yet and don't want to know what happens, go away and watch the film. It's only 70 minutes. The chances are this podcast episode will actually be longer than the film. <laughs> <It's very laughs> quick watch right right so as for the summary the 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 film takes place in a summer camp in 1963 they were shooting actually in 63 it it takes place 
in the summer camp in the Soviet Union, you have to realize was the place where the majority of the kids went over the summer. Uh, the Soviet pioneers from early on, from ages uh, ranging from six up until 15 or 16, kids would go to those camps. And if you're older, you can still stay in camp afterwards and become like an RA or, you know, a kind of administrator or head of a group, be assigned to a group of kids. So it takes place in this classical Soviet summer camp uh, over the course of the summer. And there's this one kid who is really, uh, his name is Kostya Inochkin. He doesn't want to play by the rules. Uh, so early on, we get into the camp and they have this routine where they go swimming and they can only swim in this charted territory, in this small space within the river, uh, because the medical staff of the Soviet camp believes that it's, it's dangerous to swim any further and you may, uh, pick up some diseases. Yes, yeah, so infections from the locals. Right, there's this fear of infection from the locals, so kids can only swim in this small part of, of the river. It looks really hilarious when the camera pans back from that, <laughs> and you see it yeah. little square. And yeah, we kind of get a sense that it's bullshit from, from very early <laughs> on. We understand that there's there really are no infections, but there's this prevalent fear uh, from the medical staff, so kids yeah. are not allowed to swim beyond that point. Um, but Kostya Inishkin, of course, finds... An actual hole in the net that's uh, that's being used as a fence, um, and he mm. swims away. He swims to to the locals. Uh, he swims to the other side of to the to the island on the other side of the river. Well, and he also does it whilst butt naked. <laughs> well, but yeah, well, he swims. He swims in his swimsuit, but then he takes the, he takes it off on the other side on the island. Yeah, yeah, because we're literally in- introduced to Costa in Inichkin. But his butt. First thing we see. Binoculars. I didn't realize that. That's the first thing we see, actually. Because <laughs> <laughs> they they say the introduction to a character is you know is a very important moment in a film. So. That's true. That's true. I can't think of too many characters where that's. That's the first true. thing. I mean. You could sort of say in Lost in Translation that it's slightly like that with Scarlett Johansson. Oh, I see. <laughs> That's <laughs> on, on yeah. the windowsill, but you know she's at least wearing clothes, even if they're kind of see-through. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, anyway. So, and by the way, we are getting introduced to Inochkin through the eyes of the camp's administrator, Comrade Dinan, who is this middle middleman functioner. You know the. The typical, you know, Soviet bureaucrat who happens to be the administrator of this camp, and he is watching uh, the kids through the binoculars standing on top of uh, some hill. Yeah, and that's how he's introduced. He's introduced as a distant figure uh, on, on top of observing. the hill, away from the crowd. Yes. Yes. Uh, so Inichkin, uh, you know, breaks the rules, so he has to be punished. So they have this huge meeting of the entire camp and Dinan stands once again on stage away from everyone else he is above and he expels Inichkin from the summer camp for breaking the rules and swimming to the other side. Well it wasn't his first offense It wasn't his first offense either, right He lists all of his other offenses <laughs> Yes, he's been breaking all the rules that are there for the sake of rules you know, the, he breaks the discipline you know, because he questions it constantly, so Dinan decides to expel him and Inochkin leaves the camp. The, you know, one of the staff members of the camp take him to the, uh, to the train station, and then they leave because they assume that Inochkin will go on, will take the train. That's yes, he's he's left on the platform to right. get the train himself because it's actually the the guy doing the milk delivery, and he. I noticed this second time round. He basically said, I can't wait here with you because the milk will spoil, so I have to get back. So, right. you know, just <laughs> stay here till the train gets here. I think he does errands around the camp, but yeah. one of his errands is milk delivery. And so while Inishkin waits for his train on the station, he uh, starts to imagine what it's going to be like when he gets home to his grandmother, because he lives with his grandmother, and what she's going to say when when he arrives, when, when she learns that he's been expelled from the camp. And that is probably my favorite part of this film. Oh, yes. <laughs> his daydream of what it's going to be like when he comes home, and uh, his grandmother hears all about it, and she dies. 
she dies from sorrow and grief because her grandson has been expelled from camp. Um, and then there's a funeral scene as he imagines it. Which is hilariously re- realized. But we, yeah, we, we don't want to spoil the punchline there. But suffice it to say, he can't subject his grandma to this fate. So He cannot. So he decides to go back to the camp and um, just stay there because he can't let her see him like that. Uh, so he, he goes back in the night. Yeah, he infiltrates the camp. He infiltrates. He uh, he sneaks back in, and he he goes on to, on illegal status. How do you say? Uh, I don't know what's the proper translation of that. There's a title card. And- yeah, yeah. That, no, I'm really glad you brought that one up because I noticed. Yeah, the translation because I tend to watch these things with subtitles just because yeah, Russian is, is okay but you know but yeah the the subtitle for the for the card there was he becomes an outlaw and right whilst that's kind of a it gets the basic meaning but i don't think it really nails it because an out if you say an outlaw i'm imagining like someone in the wild west or robin hood you know so it's very like criminal right swashbuckling yeah yeah but almost like a romantic thing whereas the subtitle is like he it's like literally like pedestal uh i forget i wrote it down somewhere but it's like he moves over to illegal status yeah on, on yeah there you go yes and that seems to me i mean again with my non-native sense of these things but it seems very much like legalese or bureaucraties right. rather than like Oh, absolutely. He became an outlaw, you know. No, no, no. Yeah, no, you're, you're making a point. You're, it's it's very bureaucratic. <laughs> yeah, and we'll get into this again, like, later in the discussion, but one of the funny things about the film is its use of language. Yes. But yes, yeah, so we have the... <laughs> so Inishkin um, acquiring illegal status and starts to live under the stage in the camp. Yes, unbeknownst to the leadership. Right, and, you know, then we follow him through... The few days that he lives there and kids discover him and they start helping him. They bring him their food and they create all different plots to kind of help him lead his life underground. Uh, quite <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. quite literally. Um, and but the main the main problem is that the Parents Day is coming and Parents Day is another big event um, during the Soviet times. And even, you know, going into Russia, it's Parents Day is this one big holiday, usually towards the end of a camp, where uh, all the parents and relatives of kids who are in camp come over and they, you know, see their kids having a great time and, you know, they kind of, you know, make a day out of that. So the parents' day is a big thing because some of the kids have really um, important, influential people. And there's one kid, this girl, whose dad is a big um, I think he's director of a company. Yeah, it's never made clear. It's, it's never just made clear. He's, he's a big shot. His comrade Mitrofanov, and so Mitrofanova is kind of like Dinin's, not exactly favorite, but he he's of the impression that she has to be sort of the center of attention and most important. Because of her father. Because he's a big deal, yeah. Right, so um, so the parents' day is coming, and Inishkin's grandmother is coming. So there's there's no chance that they can keep up this this ruse. Yeah, one of the kids, I, I think it's one of the kids, explains that just about everyone who's a relative, like anyone who just doesn't really have anything to do, so you get all these kind of aunts and uncles. <laughs> everybody like, comes. Like, yeah, that's it. what they. Yeah, yeah. like uh, everybody who's who's of kin comes over who has yeah. who's completely unrelated Some connection. To the yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, so they, they, you know, the kids try, they create a few plots to kind of to try to cancel the parents' day, but they obviously fail in the end. So they realize that the parents' day is inevitable. And closer to towards the end, some of the junior leadership of camp also finds out that um, Inichkin is in fact uh, in the camp and they try to help him as well. So basically towards the end, everyone other than Dinan is aware <laughs> that Inichkin is here and they're all fine with him. They kind of, they want to help him. But they know yeah. that if Dean finds out, then it's you know it's it's going to be it's it's going to be a fiasco. So they they kind of try yeah. to hide him from him. But so then the parent day comes, and on parent day they have this masquerade, which as they as it's portrayed in the film, that's ma- that masquerade that same masquerade has been happening for years. 
yes. you know, the instructions <laughs> for the masquerade are old. <laughs> Some of the words have disappeared already because it's, it's such an old manuscript. But it's the same thing that's been going on there uh, every single time on Parents Day. Yeah, from Deanin's point of view, it's like, it's tried and true, don't mess with the formula. Right, that's the guy who's kind of really afraid to uh, step away from the formalistic rules of this, you know, of the system. So the masquerade is coming in. The big star of the masquerade is Court, the queen of the fields, the Court, uh, which is also an obvious jab at uh, the Khrushchev times and the Khrushchev's uh infatuation with a corn. This crazy yeah. idea of trying to, um, you know, grow it in Russia where the conditions really don't allow for it. I think it was actually after his trip to the United States where he saw the corn and the use of corn syrup and everything and he decided to kind of implement that in the Russian agriculture. But it, it did not pan out at all. Yeah, it was an absolute disaster. There was massive soil erosion and stuff, partly because he was so keen to get this done that he wouldn't listen to people saying, firstly, this isn't a good fit. And secondly, you have to do all this preparation if you're going to try and grow corn on this kind of soil. Right. There was a massive PR campaign, you know, promoting corn in every corner. Mm. I've seen so many posters from the time with corn. As oh, the, really? Yes, yes. It's been, it's, it was a huge deal at the time. So, so obviously the star of the masquerade is corn, the queen, the queen of the fields. Um, yes. and in Dinan's playbook, you know, the, obviously the part of the queen of the fields should be played by Mitrofanova the daughter of the big shot who's coming. Yeah. And she wants to do a piece to him. And dear listener, we'll leave it up to your imagination whether this all goes to Dinan's plan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so shall, shall we leave it at that then? Yeah, let's leave it Let's leave it at that. So yeah, and that's the film. Like I said at the start, it's, it's very compact. It's like barely properly feature length. I mean, it may not even technically be feature length. It's like 70 minutes. 70 minutes, yeah. But they pack so much in, and like we've already alluded to... It's very dynamic. Yeah, very dynamic and very satirical. Like, on the on the one level, there's a lot of very obvious visual gags, you know, mm. yeah, yep. butts. Butts are funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> butts are funny. There's quite a bit of nudity in the film, actually. There is, like a surprising amount. Yeah, and I read, I read a little bit of um, Ellen Plymouth's diaries while he was shooting the film. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, there are notes available. Um, and afterwards, when he was, you know, it was part of his thesis, so he had to write the theoretical part of it, um, where he, oh, like, okay. reflected, yeah, yeah. he reflected on the experience of shooting the film. And then that particular scene, according to him, mm. uh, you know, the kids were really, that was one of the hardest things things for them to shoot but when they were uh when they devise a plan to kind of to cancel the parents day one of the plans that they devise is you know to create this epidemic so they all jump into what's the stinging nettles stinging right um they yeah. actually did that that's all true did they oh they did because okay, i was like how did they fake this but no no that was all true <laughs> But the they hardest part—the hardest part for the kids was not the part where they jumped. They were okay mm. with that, but um, actually undressing in front of the females. Oh, okay. So the yeah. only the only well, way they did it was uh, they asked all the all the girls to kind of leave the set for that particular scene. Yeah, isn't that hilarious? Fair, fair. Because I mean, you know, with adults, that's a very self-conscious. Thing, so you know right. totally understandable that kids would feel that way as well that is like a very wince inducing scene though just <laughs> you know just imagining putting yourself in that place yeah. and oh my like, god i mean just getting stung on the arm with a stinging nettle is very unpleasant and it's like i hope i can go for the rest of my life without that happening to me again <laughs> yeah I'm okay but just the idea of of, of getting completely starkers and being covered in like welts it's just like oh yeah so nasty but it is a it is a, a great it sounds overblown but it's a great cinematic moment in terms of just like identifying with the characters <laughs> right and the lengths that the kids are willing to go to, mm, to for their absolutely friend. right and yeah. that's if, you know i think it, it's the it's the inherent contradiction um that's you know uh, reflected in the title as well <laughs> yes and there's a lot of, there's there's a big kind of the, the entire film is built on this contradiction between what's what's real and what's the ideal you know the what the rule says it is and what 
it actually is and how the kids should behave and what they're doing. You know, very early on in the film, we see this huge, you know, poster that says that kids are the owners of the camp. Yes. <laughs> which we, again, we should, obviously that's not the case because, uh, you know, their freedoms are very limited. Uh, you know, there's harsh discipline. So it's, there's always this kind of, you know, there's tension between what's, what's real and what's, uh, what it's supposed to be. And I think that was part of, part of the idea. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't portray Dinan, at least I don't think, as a horrible or a mean guy, particularly. He's like, he's fairly benevolent, but seriously misguided. I think he's just, yeah, he's he's the product of his own time. He's stuck in, in, in you know, inside his own beliefs of what it's supposed to be. He's, he's part of the system. He's the cog in the system. He, he feels uncomfortable, you know, questioning it. Yeah, like he is very anti, like thinking for yourself, and this is manifested both in his expulsion of Inichkin from the camp. Like one of the reasons, like the prior violations he cites, is the fact that Inichkin has been reading a book under his covers with a torch, and then the rest of the kids started doing it. Right, even girls. And now they're all reading books. <laughs> right. And then, of course, like his interactions with Valia, who's one of the like uh, the Komsomol like young adults, who's who are the kind of like the junior leadership. Yes, right. Like that interaction when she's making the case for like leniency with Inichkin, it's really like dismissive. Right, and there's there's a there's a good scene when uh, he comes over or she comes over and she, uh, he asks or Dinan asks Valia what she's reading. She's like, "That's Chekhov." Um, and he suggests that instead of Chekhov, she should read the rules of the camp or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Something yeah. technical. That's kind of, you yeah. know, that's very telling. <laughs> yeah, and literally when she says Chekhov, uh, he says, why? Why? It's, just, it's funny. She says, it's funny. Uh, and, and his response like, is, you oh. laugh too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's another point I noticed this time around, which I guess passed me by the previous time I watched this was uh, there's there's also a point where she's trying to get the kids to like recite as part of like one of the performances some Mayakovsky. Yes. And he's like, mm, let's not. Let's happen. not do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So he's definitely he's definitely not you know malevolent. He's uh, a product. He's a product of the system. I, I love his little nostalgic. It's not exactly a tirade, but when he lectures the kids about what summer camp was like when he was their age right right which is another in my opinion it's another obvious job towards uh you know khrushchev times because uh, it was in the soviet union it was the time of the thaw uh when there was uh you know censorship was at its all-time low and mm. a lot of more things were allowed but um you know khrushchev was kind of was famous for you know giving his speeches about how amazing things are right now compared to yeah. how they were back in the day. Yeah, we we had a prime minister in a kind of a similar time in history. I, for, I you know, for shame, forget exactly which one it was, but he said, you've never had it so good. And that's almost sounds like that would have been his slogan as well. well that's like Comrade Dinan right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and by extension, Khrushchev, yeah. Yeah, by the way, <laughs> unless it's uh, not extremely obvious, uh, you know, that film was considered really uh, controversial at the time because it, it was kind of a metaphor for the entire country. The summer camp, it, oh, yeah. it was the Soviet Union with all its rules for the sake of rules that, uh, you know, don't really make sense, but you don't want to question them. Uh, you know, harsh discipline, uh, the fear of uh, the outside where you may catch infections and some locals. <laughs> yeah, that because that one, like the first time around, that sort of like passed me by because I was mainly focused on the stuff that happens inside the camp. But yeah, very clearly the outsiders are kind of like the West. Dangerous and you don't want to be there. And, yeah. you know, you don't want to question it. Uh, and you also don't want to have too much contact with those outsiders because... Right, because they may, yeah. they may give you ideas. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I don't know how that passed me by the first time, but there's a lot in this film. It's it, it really know. is. Um, yeah, and it's you know, we, it's it's amazing that it was even released that it, it got greenlit. Yeah, there are a few stories surrounding how the movie actually made it to the screens. You know, um, I talked to my dad about it. And he knew mm. the screenwriter actually, and my dad claims that it was just a bureaucratic mistake. 
Um, my dad claims that, you know, in order for a film to be released, um, you had to have a this kind of, you know, a formal letter from the committee saying that it's mm. been released. And people in charge of green lighting films, they didn't watch everything because okay. there were quite a few films. So they saw that this was a thesis from, you know, a highly acclaimed student in Moscow Film School. And it read, it's about a summer camp. So right. how bad can it be? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That'll be fine. I'm they sure. They lit it, and it went. It went. <laughs> people saw it, um, and once they saw it, and once they kind of realized what it was, there was kind of you know there was no turning back. Or I'm not sure whether I completely believe in that story, mm. uh, but it's a good story nonetheless. It's a, it's a it's a great story, and that does seem very much like a well, if we withdraw it, we'll just be drawing attention to the fact that it's subversive. Subver- exactly. You would create controlling. more of a scandal by banning it after it's been released. Yeah, we'll just be like, I don't see what the big deal is. <laughs> yeah, it's just a summer camp, you know? We have we have free speech here. But I read another story. Um, another story goes that, uh, you know, when when Goskino, which was the state front production company and basically the, you know, the, the censorship committee uh, you know, the, the committee in charge of like letting the films, when they mm. saw it, they didn't want it to, they didn't want to release it. But mm. uh, Sergei Gerasimov, who was basically the first man at, at Moscow Film School at the time, he's also a highly acclaimed filmmaker with a big reputation at the time. When he saw the film, uh, he was, uh, he was personally, uh, he personally took it upon him. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he had a big fight with the studio um, and he was the one who uh, made sure that the film got delivered to Khrushchev. And, went, and then, you know, the story goes that Khrushchev saw the film and he kind of liked it, he enjoyed it. And that's, that's how it got released. You know, there are all the different kinds of stories, you know, whatever you want to believe in. It, it is a sort of a miracle, but it, it was great at the time and people actually had a chance to see it back in 64. Yeah. And I can see why it's so beloved, because it's so much fun, because it's like... As an idea, it's a relatively hard sell. Like if I tell my friends, oh, there's this brilliant film about a Soviet summer camp and some kids like rebelling against the authorities. Go, oh, that, that's just going to be corny or cheesy. Well, corny, no pun intended, but you know. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's so nicely done. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the direction is, is really good. Just Right. Um, it, it, it is. And I think it's not corny because... In, at least in my mind, it wasn't, um, you know, conscious attempt of ideological subversion. You know, Alan Klimov doesn't hate Soviet Union. He's not, you know, diversant. He, he just, it's, it's irony. It's, uh, it's, he obviously loves his home country, but he also can't help but notice all the double standards uh, and, you know, all the ideological propaganda. So, I think it comes from the place of love, and that's why it's not—it's it's honest. Yeah, like I feel like if you were attempting to do a satire from the outside, it probably would feel more mean-spirited. I suspect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, he's—he's he's the one who's, who's lived through that himself, right? So it—it it, it comes from experience. Um, yeah, and he's—he's he's poking fun at things that, like you say, are real problems with the system rather than just his and there's not a single there's not a single dislikable character there's not a single antagonist in in, in, you know in the big sense um yeah i mean i would say yeah deenan is he's uh, troubled but technically yeah an antagonist but not because he's like this vicious bastard you know right right. yeah he's 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 no stalin figure in terms of how he rules the camp Definitely not. Like in terms of some of the direction things, I I love the way that the imagination scenes of Inichkin are done. I particularly we've talked about it already, but his imagining his grandma's reaction. But that's literally when he's sitting on the bench waiting for the train to come. The train arrives, the doors open, and then he's in the corridor outside, approaching his... the apartment. Yeah, and then the scene finishes. And it's the train doors opening up again, so it's like they're closing. The door, the train doors are closing because the train is leaving the station. Yeah, 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 exactly. I love all of these imagination scenes. There's one where he's already underground and he just imagines because he overhears uh, someone saying that he uh, how, how does how, I don't know how to properly translate it that he 
spoiled Dinan's blood. Oh yeah, like Dinan's blood has boiled because of like the implication is the stress that Enochkin has caused to him or something. Like that's very much implied, but yeah. Yeah, so, so he imagines what would actually happen if you literally <laughs> you literally spoiled some of Dinan's blood, you know, and how how that would pan out in the phantasmagorical <laughs> you know, sequence. Yeah. And then the statue's coming to life when he comes back into the camp and he set all of these things up. I like the fact that it's not just something random that, I mean, it is kind of random, but it's stuff you've already seen mm-hmm. behaving in a in a way that you haven't right. seen before. Speaking of those statues, that's another interesting point because those statues are the ideals of what the pioneer should be, right? And that's, they their behavior goes completely, you know, in contradiction with how kids actually behave in camp. Well, with that, like, you see them all together in a row, these statues, but the first one that it focuses on is is a little girl reading, and I forget the caption, it's like Uchenya? Um, Uchenya Svet, right? Yes, yes, it's, uh, so that's like, knowledge is... Light. Yes, knowledge is enlightenment. Right, but yeah, um, I, I bet you she's not reading Chekhov, she's probably reading some rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, may maybe Gorky. Maybe you're allowed to read him, but uh, <laughs> yeah, something ideologically appropriate. Subtle little digs, particularly as we go on to have, as we've mentioned before, Dinin and his attitude to reading and like, you know, choosing the art that you'll see yourself. And he's like, nope, doesn't really. He doesn't really have time for any of that. Right. There's a scene that they cut out. That they had to cut out because of censorship. I don't know if, if you know this. No. There's a scene that was supposed to be in the film, but they had to cut it out uh, during, you know, the final review of the film. And it's the scene where Dinan sits in his office and he has this fridge, which he uses as a safe, where he keeps all the files on all the 263 kids in the camp. And, uh, you know, those files are being currently upda- uh, constantly updated. Um, mm. And so he keeps them in the fridge. And whenever he's missing something from the file, he goes deeper into the fridge and camera follows him into the fridge and it turns out that the fridge um, is actually more of like a portal with a corridor and so Dinan goes to, through that corridor and in the, at the end there's a door which he opens and it opens into the landscape with a lot of hills um, and on top of each hill there's a stage similar to the one he's standing on uh, and there are people like him who are kind of you know delivering speeches from those uh, stages. That's the scene that got cut out. Oh, that's a that's a shame because that sounds really cool. But on the other hand, yeah, I can see why they would have said, "Nope, you're not doing this." Right, but that's like that adds to the you know fantasy. Uh, the film is very whimsical, yeah. and there are a lot of like this fantasy scenes that are very nicely done. There's even a little bit of commentary on censorship in the film. Like one of the things that all the kids look forward to is there's a movie screening. Oh yeah, Fan Fan the uh, the Chilip. Is that a real movie or? It is. It is. Oh, okay. It is yeah, a yeah. real film. It's quite a like even old by that time. Like yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure when it was shot, but yeah, it's it's a real film. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that, but that it looks very much like a sort of swashbuckling, like musketeers or that sort of a thing. Which was a rage in the Soviet Union at the time. Boys adored, you know, three musketeers, uh, dark and young. Okay. That was all the rage. Dumas was a big writer for the Soviet Union. Far enough back and far enough away, and not particularly revolutionary. In its content, that it's like, well, that's safe. It's just adventures, you right, know. Right. It's fine. So yeah, that's that's what they're what they're watching. But whilst the performances is going on, you get a bit where something slightly risque happens. You've got a a young woman in, I guess you'd say, like fairly extreme, like decolletage in terms of the the top that she's wearing. Right. And so the Komsomol guys who were in charge of the projector put this card or something in front of the light so that it's no longer projecting to the whole audience. But they can still see it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They are watching it themselves, but they're just not allowing kids to see it. And the kids are all like, hey, 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 <laughs> film. And of course, and then it cuts to a new scene and then they move the card away and, you know, it goes back. It goes back to the action scene. Which is fine. Right. <laughs> but yeah, again, I, I love that there's that little subversive thing just in like an everyday activity 
or even just like one of the special treats of the camp. They'd still have this thing and they kind of make this little dig at right. the system, even with that. It's it's very cool. Is there anything I'm missing? Anything else that I should be talking about? Uh, let me see. Well, you know, this time, actually, what I thought about is, um, you know, all the influences that kind of, uh, that affected Klimov when he was making the film. One of the references that I didn't get for quite some time, but struck me as relevant when I started film school, uh, was how much he was influenced by the silent movies in making of this film. Okay, yes. You know, uh, there, first of all, the use of intertitles within the film. When they appear on screen, that's an obvious, you know, homage to the silent movies. Um, and then there are a few scenes that seem very, uh, you know, there's a scene with a pig that kind of escapes and runs through the camp. And uh, <laughs> yeah. the music that they use for that scene is exactly the kind of music that you would hear in like in uh, in the action scenes of silent movies. Mm. Yeah, and there's there's another point earlier on in the film. I forget exactly which scene it is but again i remember thinking huh that's quite silent movie-esque yes right because yeah, that's, no, a, that's obviously yeah. a big influence because he's also a film student right so he learned all of that right <laughs> so he, he used that a lot that's that's a lot of his, that's where a lot of his sensibilities are coming from and uh eisenstein is a big influence on him you know the character of the head of the medical staff this woman uh, <laughs> who's yes. in charge who's also quite a character she very much reminds me of, I don't know if you've seen Battleship Potomkin. I have, yes. But there's, so remember, there's this famous shot of a woman uh, with uh, crooked glasses. Yeah, this is during the step sequence, right? Right, yes, yeah. yes it is. Uh, and so, I, you know, there's, in Inishkin's imagination, when he spoils Dinan's blood, it starts, mm. the sequence starts off with that medical staff, and there's a close-up on her face, uh, and, you know, her voice is just a siren. Uh, that, <laughs> that shot is almost replicated exactly like Eisenstein's. Mm, like the framing and everything. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, yeah. In, in my experience, I saw Eisenstein later after I saw Welcome mm. or No Trespassing. Sure, so in my sure. mind, Eisenstein replicated Klimov's shot, not the other <laughs> way around. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Was, was there anything else? Because you mentioned uh, Klimov's diaries and reading and reading those. Was there anything else particularly that you recall from those that was like juicy or interesting? You know, there were a lot of um, you know interesting stories from production. Uh, they created the twenty statues. You know, in, in the scene where where Inishkin goes back into the camp at night, and all the statues are kind of you know reprehending him for for that. They created those <laughs> statues. Um, particularly for that scene. And, you know, they wanted to transport it because they were filming in three different summer camps. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, the kids were quite moving around. So um, in, order, in order to easily transport them, they, they didn't have either the, times or the time or the means to make them from concrete or from mm. cement. So they just did it from uh, papier-mâché. So all those tactics are actually paper. And the production designer was commenting how he thought it's going to fail. He thought there's <laughs> no chance that they're going to hold up. and that, um, But they did, and it worked out beautifully in the end. <laughs> Yeah, because those do look awesome. It's it's a very nicely designed. Right, they don't look like they're made from paper, but they are. No, no, I would have never got that. And I don't, I don't know why, but the the, the black and white is just gorgeous. It's, yeah, it's really actually, nice. That's an, that's also a choice. Um, he's talking about that a little bit. How why they decided to make it black and white? They didn't have again. It was very the, the time didn't permit them to um, shoot it in color. Okay, yeah, because color film, you know, is is expensive. Or... It's, it's expensive and it's um, time consuming in terms of you know uh, creating creating lighting the scenes. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, they chose black and white for aesthetic reasons as well because they thought that it would bring something of well, again, of of, of kind of you know the the past. Yeah, nostalgia. Right, right. That's the word I was looking for. The holy feeling it's a memory you know yeah yeah which you know given like Deenan's nostalgia during the film yeah and and again and, the homage to the silent films and uh, you know Klimov's own yeah aesthetics. Oh, yeah absolutely and and even in the 
one of the early title cards. It's right right at the beginning. I think it says it's this film is dedicated to adults who were children and children, and who, children will who will surely be must, adults. Yes, yeah. Oh, is yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Bloomberg said himself that he intended this film more for adults than rather than for kids, but it has this whimsy, of course. So again, he himself, he was very young when he shot it. Yeah, yeah, because he would have been trying to work it work it out in his like early early twenties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there is one thing I wanted to mention. I love the fact that they essentially do the Ferris Bueller ending, but like. <laughs> two decades before <laughs> Ferris Bueller, so I, I was like, "Yeah, that was that was very fun." <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's really good, and if you haven't already watched it at this point, you should definitely go and check it out. It's seventy minutes of your life, and you will laugh a lot. Oh, oh, another point that I want to. Oh, I, I oh, just sure, remember. Sure, sure. Um, did you? So Inichkin uh, gets expelled from the camp because he swam. You know, the final yes. straw that broke the camel's back is that he swam on the other land, right? It turned out that Victor Kasif, who plays Inishkin's part, didn't know how to swim. He lied. Oh, no he way. lied during casting because he wanted the part really badly. Mm. But when they already got to the location, um, Klima find, found out that Victor or Kostya uh, in the film cannot swim. So it was, they were shooting in an actual summer camp. So in the summer camp, there was this guy who was, um, you know, an athlete uh, who was uh, a swimmer. So for a week, they were shooting scenes without Inishkin because uh, Inishkin was learning how to swim at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, they managed to cover that up. And yeah, pretty, pretty really well. well. I would never have guessed. Awesome. Well, I think that's probably all we should say so we're not giving away all of the jokes, but I think we both agree you definitely need to check this film out. Um, but before we, before we go, uh, Tanya... Is there anything you would like to direct listeners towards? Oh, <laughs> you're very kind to ask, Ali. I'm glad you did. I used to do a show that's probably going to be revived in some foreseeable future. I really hope we can get to do that again. I created a show on YouTube that is kind of, that's, I view it as an extension of my stand-up and the weird perspective of our Russian living through living in the United States, um, you know, during this turbulent times. <laughs> so I, I created a show called Russian Something, which I wrote for it, and I, I'm on camera there. And I, it's a basically it's a five-minute or six-minute episodes about some of the current events that might not be really covered that much in, in foreign media, but are, you know, the current events in Russia uh, from the perspective of a Russian. It's called yeah, Russian, that... it's called Russian something. You can find it on YouTube if you just type in Russian something, or I have a website that's called tanyalucky.com. That T A N Y A L U C K Y dot com. Uh, you awesome. can find some of the episodes there as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, definitely, I'll include that in in the show notes because it's always really nice to get a more nuanced perspective because just the way sometimes things are portrayed in the media and just the way that news works it sometimes works against nuance and it almost would seem like the entire you know russian people are united in you know wanting to <laughs> mess things up for the americans and the west and I, I created a bit of a character there for myself as well i i'm this you know uh propagandistic Russian state-run media uh, reporter or host of the of the news show. Uh, so, yeah, I think it adds it adds to the perspective a little bit. Yeah, it, it's very Colbert-esque. I it, think. it is, and yes, I'm definitely influenced by that. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, so definitely, definitely have to check those out. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you so much for for being a guest, Tanya. Oh, it was a pleasure. You. Thank oh, you for yeah. having me, Ali. Yeah, it's been great. All right, so. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening, and до свидания, folks. До свидания. So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovich and the highly skilled migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. 
If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes. So if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media, please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves, and bye for now. So you're still here? Yeah, that podcast's finished.